1: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we cover the deadly Russian strike on an apartment block in Dnipro, in central Ukraine, that killed dozens of men, women, and children. Plus, we look at the extraordinary news on Saturday that Britain will send Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. This
0: hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong.
2: We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 16th of January, day 327. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and James Kilner, currently travelling across Poland, who reported on the vicious Russian attacks on civilian targets over the weekend. I started by asking Dom for a summary of the attack and the international reaction.
3: Well, hi, Francis, and hello, everybody. Yeah, So Nipro, Nipro the city, uh, the same name as the river uh, that it runs alongside or that it sits alongside, a city of about 1.4 million people hit on Saturday, part of a wave of attacks across the country. Um, hit on Saturday. Dozens uh, believed to have died. The regional governor last update this morning said that 40 people have been killed, 75 injured, uh, 35 people still missing. But obviously that's from from Saturday. So the hopes of uh, putting any more survivors from the rubble are uh, fading fast. Uh, James will be able to tell us more uh, about this. It was a, a it was a nine storey apartment block that was hit. Um, no military value whatsoever. Um, I, well, I wouldn't even bother with the with the statement from Russia, but you can imagine that they, you know, they're all there. They didn't hit it, you know, not them, of course, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it was a horrific attack. Uh, terrible, terrible pictures on uh, the papers today and, uh, and across social media. It was part of a part of a wave of attack on Saturday. There were possible ballistic missile strikes, something we don't often see, haven't often seen. Uh, regularly seen in in, uh, in this phase of the war since February the twenty fourth, but possible ballistic missile strikes on Kyiv on Saturday morning, possibly fired from Belarus. No one's really sure because the the missiles struck and um, the impacts were heard. No casualties, thankfully, but it, impacts heard before the air raid alarms went off in Kyiv, and that's that's not unsurprising. Ballistic missiles are going exceptionally fast and they come in at a very very high angle so there's very little air defense can do um they get very little warning especially if they're far from belarus but also there's very little air defense can do against them because they're coming in at such a at such a high angle um however like i say it's a bit of confusion around that because there there were impacts heard and no casualties before the air raid alarms went off but um there's no mistake in what happened in in Dnipro and uh, James will be able to tell us more but but, but I mean just uh, it continues this this pattern of aggression from Russia I mean it's not even it, there's no it's not a piece of civilian infrastructure there's no there's no energy plants nearby not that that is in any way justification for what Russia has been doing it continues this pulse remember I had a um, a brief from a a western official last week and the the official made the comment that with the dwindling ammunition stocks that russia has for long range weaponry um there's a there's a sort of pulse of about seven to ten days between these big barrages that they've they've been able to go for um, and that gap in between these barrages is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as as they as their stocks dwindle, but as their stocks dwindle, they are increasingly turning to um, dumb munitions, so not precision guided, uh, or munitions that are being used out of their primary role. So, for example, we know that they've been using in the in the ground to ground role some anti ship missiles. So, as I have said before, the thing still has a warhead on it; it'll still it'll still explode when it hits something when it when it gets to the where it's uh, the target it's going for, or anywhere else. Um, but the guidance system and the way it operates. If it's designed for primarily a maritime attack, then it's not going to operate exactly as it as it should do in the land attack, and therefore the the accuracy uh, is even less. So I don't know what what munition this was that was used in the Dnipro attack, but as Russia is increasingly depleted of its precision guided munitions and and general weaponry, it's turning to other forms of. Uh, other forms of ammunition, some of which are just simply not suited for the task that they are using it for. And of course, layer on top of that, the moral consideration or the, the utter lack of moral consideration that they just don't care. They don't care that, what, that they hit civilian infrastructure. In fact, I think they're quite pleased when it does because they believe that they can win by chipping away at the resolve of the Ukrainian society and, uh, and the international resolve outside the country um, supporting Kiev. But James will be able to tell us more.
2: Yes. And just before I come to James, who, as I say, is about is is currently traveling across Poland as we speak. There's been some more details on this attack that's come out from President Zelensky last night. And I think it's just worth reflecting on when you hear these numbers and exactly who these people are as well. So, as you say, Dom, over 40 people have been killed and 75 injured thus far. Last night, President Zelensky was saying 39 people were rescued, including six children. 25 were killed as of last night, including one child, with 73 wounded, including 13 children, with 43 missing. As I say, these numbers have now risen considerably from that. Among the dead, we know that there's a 15-year-old girl who was school president and a ballroom dancer there's also a boxing coach from ukraine's boxing federation he's also been announced that he's been killed and survived by his wife and two children. so we are seeing detailed accounts coming through of who some of these people are who as I say were just in these uh, in this apartment block and um it was not a legitimate target. This is a war crime. Um, there's no um, other way of describing it. So um, absolutely shocking what we're what we're seeing and reading about this. Zelensky also announced last night that he, it would be adding a, a further 200 more Russians and Kremlin supporters to its sanctions list following the attack. He said, and I quote, I think it is right that today there is a decision to expand our sanctions against Russian citizens and other persons who help. Terror... Now, something else that was going on over the weekend which has really just brought all of this, I think, into an even starker focus for many people is that it was uh, Miss Universe, the competition, and indeed Miss Russia was present there wearing a, a dress that can only be described as uh, incendiary for many. It was bright red and uh, it was seen, because the, the Russian state was involved in this, as being a, a deliberate remark on the attacks on Ukraine and possibly even the attack on the Nipro itself. Uh, she herself said that the theme was the Russian Empire Not Russia, but the Russian Empire, and it was partly designed by the State Hermitage Museum. And I mention this not to be frivolous, but rather to, to say that so many people have commented on the contrast between the hideous accounts that we've been hearing today of people screaming in the rubble, trapped under the rubble of this apartment block, and people cheering at this competition for... Uh, Miss Russia. And I think many, many people are asking serious questions to how it can be permitted for Russia to literally parade itself in this manner uh, on an international competition like that and to have been enabled to do so when such hideous attacks, many of which people are, are... Calling terrorist acts are are taking place so prominently, and indeed it didn't it shouldn't surprise us given that we've seen numerous attacks like this now. But I think the timing of this is is also relevant. But I'm um, just turning to James. James, you were covering this for us over the weekend. Just very interested to hear your reflections on the story and further insights that no, you no doubt have. Yeah, I found myself reporting on this
0: terrible story of first of all it dead and fifteen injured, and then the the death toll was updated to 12 and then it became 20 etc etc and the personal stories came out and 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 the videos and and the photos all, all made for an incredibly distressing uh shift but obviously very important to report and 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 i think in my estimation that will go down i think the death toll saw and i run about 39 at the moment children when they learning everyone's been caught up in it and i think it's going to go down in, in my estimation is perhaps the Biggest or the deadliest single long-range missile attack from from Russia since the war began. Now I, you know, have to carry that of with with long-range. I'm talking about missile attacks from uh, boats or bombers, you know, miles away. I'm not talking about artillery uh, hits, which have taken out a lot of people. Importantly, like Dom said, the Russians denied it. They said uh, it was a Ukrainian air defence system hit their missile above Dnipro and uh, deflected it onto this missile block. Now, it's really important to stress straight away that the Ukrainians don't currently possess the right air defense systems to take out ballistic or cruise missiles, They're waiting for the Patriot missile system from uh, the US, which is some way off. And I'm sure Dom knows a lot more about me. But the Russian sort of answer excuse, you know, shifting blame, etc., has already been totally punctured. It's just not. Possible that the Ukrainian air defense system, especially around Dnipro, could have shot down this cruise missile.
2: Well, thanks, James. I'm sure we'll come back to this theme later today. Don, before we do, however, and talk about, of course, the Challenger 2 tank story, which was the other big one over the weekend, what's the latest on other areas of the battlefront?
3: Yeah, so it's worth just checking in with um, Solidar and, um, and Bakhmut in the east, in the Donbass region, just because it is featured so highly in the news of uh, recently. So this morning's defence intelligence update from British MOD said that intense fighting has continued in both Kremina, that's to the north of Bakhmut, uh, and Bakhmut City itself. And on Saturday, so this is a, a British assessment, on Saturday, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, and their words, almost certainly maintain positions in Solidar, which is north of Bakhmut, as I say, in the face of continued Wagner Group assaults, unquote. So They're saying almost certainly maintain positions. So that's heavily, heavily caveated. But we think the last reporting was that although um, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, Putin's chef, has claimed that that they've taken solidar. uh, It's that's disputed up to last week. uh, It was not suggested from any sources that that could possibly be. Um, independently verified that the whole of the town had been taken by by Russia. There were still Ukrainian positions in the west of the town. That seems to be backed up by the uh, British Defence Intelligence Assessment, saying they've almost certainly maintained positions. So, those positions are slim on the west of the town and almost certainly is, is not a definite. But I just wanted to, because it's featured so highly last week, just we just need to keep uh, keep tabs on that. And of course, the suggestion is that Progosian's come out of the blocks quickly claiming victory in Solidar as part of an internal power struggle with the in the Russian MOD. So he's claiming that Wagner are the only ground forces having any kind of effect at the moment. He has to have a... Has to have a um, a victory um, to to turn around to the to, to, to for his influence operation inside Moscow, um, and therefore he he was announcing last week uh, victory still un, still contested. Uh, we we cannot verify that that claim, um, but yeah, just just bring that. So it's still confusing as we said last week. But I just wanted to
2: bring you that because it um, it's been featuring so highly of recent in recent days. Thanks, Dom. And James, I know you've been following Wagner very closely for us as well. Just did what your thoughts are on the, on the news around Solidar and its its general significance.
0: So I think this is a very significant moment based for Wagner and the Russian military Defence. Again, as Dom just said, Wagner and the Russian military Defence are absolutely at loggerheads and can't stand each other. And when Solidar was assumed to have been taken by Russian forces on Friday, the Russian Minister of Defense very quickly put out several statements, lording up the bravery of its paratroopers and, and storming the final uh, Ukrainian redoubts, and pushing away Ukrainian defenders, etc., etc. And they went on through the day, on Friday, through the day detailing this, despite Prigozhin's increasingly shrill uh, dis- disputes about this. And, and he got increasingly agitated because, in his eyes, Waldner deserved all the credit. His fighters deserved all the credit until we got to this remarkable point quite late on Friday, where suddenly the Russian MOD turned around and said, actually, you know what, this is all down to uh, the violent guys. The violent guys did it all. And it was such a remarkable about turn that someone must have put their foot down and said, what is going on here, guys? Stop the squabble. And then later, it turned out that some incredibly well-informed Russian military bloggers, or or analysts, whatever you want to call them, a couple of them started quoting a meeting that privilege, uh, and Putin had apparently had in in Saint Petersburg that afternoon. So Putin had been in, in a city called in the southern Urals all day. He'd been there to lace of flowers on on the coffin of a of a notable politician who just died. So he was he was outside the Kremlin, was outside the sort of normal come on scenarios. Uh, while all this row was going on over Telegram and uh, the internet, etc. And when he did fly back, he had this meeting with and apparently, off of this meeting with Progorin, who we know is has reasonable connections with Putin, he has been done Putin's chef because it, his company, uh, Concord uh, Catering Company, has some contracts with the Kremlin. And there's photo, or, uh, photos of him being a familiar with George Bush when he was over, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he really acts as Putin's fixer in many ways. And, and the and the involved group is an extension of. Of, of Putin, his sort of power, his sort of dirty, mercenary power, and, and Prigozhin is like his his sort of um, his sergeant major, if you like, running on his pop So Pryorzhin turns up, he has a chin-wag with Putin. He said, look, this is not on the MAD, claiming the mission defense, Russian mission defense claiming this, this victory, but in fact it was a bomb, the Bobby guys. But it's up to it. And so clearly... The MAD got a message from Putin, or, or the president's administration itself. They're the only ones who could force this, you know, abrupt about turn. turn and said, "Look, you have to acknowledge Wagner's uh, victory here," and and they did. It was absolutely remarkable. And we all know that the Russian Ministry of Defense is full of lies and it, and it massively spins things all over the place. You know, over-evaluating its successes and and covering up its failures, etc. And here we were, he was exposed by his own allies, exposed by the Wagner group. So, really, the tension between these two fighting forces now is, is absolutely remarkable. Very quickly, more recently, maybe the weekend, the Russian military, the community, and the MAD and Wagner have moved on quickly over the squabbling or who, who captured Solidarity, et, et cetera. But there is now increased noise, I'd say, from their supporters, that their sympathizers. Saying that the victory in Solidar has come at a huge costs, and it has exhausted the mercenary group. This this bunch of venturers, misfits, and convicts, it, it's exhausted them, and they're going to have to spend another recruitment round, etc. And they're also starting to talk about subsuming Wagner uh, in some some sort of more official capacity under the command. In in not really sure under the command of or, or inside the Russian military. So at the moment they, they they've got a very clear command structure and they really have their own command systems worked out and and, and they really look to be looking for this leadership and some strategic leadership etc. That might be subsumed more inside the Russian military is, is what I've been reading, and in one sense this 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 does make sense and in another sense it doesn't at all. So you've got to try and meld these two very different forces murderers and and comets like i was saying. Involved uh, in this sort of semi-professional force, uh, the Russian army, backed up by mobilised men who who are, who are real amateurs, uh, having a go. And the second, and, and so so that is a difficult match, but but the the way it does make sense is that the Russian shock troops, their parachute units, were completely decimated by the, in the initial stages of the invasion in in, in Ukraine in February, and the really hard fighting for months afterwards. So the Russian army actually needs a force, a stormtrooper uh, force, to be able to send over the top and, and take out Ukrainian positions. Now, these hardened criminals, which make up the bulk of uh, the bomb forces, these murderers they recruited from, from penal colonies from Siberia, etc., they are the tough guys that can do this job. The mobilised men, the 320,000 mobilised men, half of which are in combat position at the moment, they're not your shock troops. They might be okay defending trenches, that sort of thing. But they're not going to storm over the top and take out these tough, hardened Ukrainian positions. So there's there's something happening there. I'd expect some recruitment round from from Vulner plus maybe some give or take on their positions on, on where they stand, RE the military.
2: Well, thank you, James, for that. Let's turn then to the big other story of the weekend, which is one that Dom and I spoke about at length last week, which was the possibility that Britain would send Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. We heard over the weekend that they would, that uh, Number 10 gave an announcement saying that a certain number of tanks would be sent as a priority. Dom, what was the latest and what was your reaction to that?
3: Yeah, so as you say, this, this was not unexpected although it's still it's still a it's still big news and I'll just preface all this bit by saying I was chatting to um, Western officials on Friday some defense sources um, no more details but um, the, the person I was speaking to said that it would be uh, it would not be incorrect to categorize the week that we're, we're now in that we're now starting as the week the West enabled Ukraine to win their words um, saying that the announcement they obviously knew about the the, the thing that was going to happen on Saturday that we will talk about in a moment, Challenger two, but they said there's going to be announcements today, Mon- uh, Monday, also Wednesday, and then running into Friday into the Rampstein contact group. So I think I think a number of things are happening. We were trying to work out last week whether or not the various international, the various different countries were were jostling to be the first one out of the blocks to supply tanks, or whether the, any any perceived delay was because they were. Trying to come to a coherent position about who can announce what when, with industrial considerations which are yeah, absolutely critical here, as we'll speak about. Um, so, trying to trying to put together a a coherent block, which may still be the case. We don't know what's going to happen happen this week, but let's do the the what, the why, and the so what. So, w- what happened? What it means, and uh, you know w- why they did it, and and so what does it what does it lead on to? So the big news from the weekend was that after a phone call between Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and President Zelensky, Britain's going to send fourteen Challenger two to Ukraine in the coming weeks, possibly four sent immediately, um, and also uh, we think thirty AS ninety artillery systems. AS ninety being a self propelled 145mm artillery gun. Uh, I mean, quite old. AS ninety was the artillery system of the nineties, to give you the clue, when it was uh, when it was brought into or designed and brought into service but the fleet there's is about is about 90 as 90 left in in british service so about a third of that going to going to ukraine 14 challenger 2 from well numbers numbers vary but we are supposed to have uh, 227 of which 148 will be upgraded to challenger 3 new gun um other bits and bobs due uh, 1.3 billion program due in in the 2030s again more of that more of that in a minute so we won't we won't dig into the What's Challenger two look like why why, uh, why what might it do on the battlefield if you i mean there's enough articles we've written, and the last couple of days uh, on the on the potty we've we've talked at length about the the ins and outs of why of what the tank can do um, but what does it mean i mean as I say, this might be um the the first of many, so it was suggested that that tanks were on that line that sort of almost my in my view self-imposed line about what's escalatory what's too provocative in various people's ideas you know as if um, as if the invasion's not been provocative but anyway um would tanks be too provocative and therefore uh, just just one Western tank. I'm talking an, an American M1 Abrams. Um, f- I forgive forgive me the, the designation of the latest variants, but basically the Americans M1 Abrams, the German-made Leopard 2, and Britain's Challenger Challenger 2, French got Leclerc. There's other there's other very very capable systems out there, but those these are the biggies. Who's going to go first? Who's going to gift it first? And there's all sorts of political considerations about end user agreements. For example, Poland w- expressed willingness to to donate. Uh, leopard twos to Ukraine, but had to get Germany's say so, and still has to get Germany's say so to to send them. And it's thought that that somebody was going to go first, and actually Challenger might be, might be an e- a slightly easier option because in 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 the bigger picture of. NATO slash Western capability Challenger is a bit of an outlier. There's not many people use the systems. Ask the Jordanians, a few others, um, but not in not in Europe. Um, it uses a different nature of ammunition. Has its own sort of logistic tail, its own um, system of maintenance, and so it is. It is a. It is. I'm not saying it's only symbolic because 14 Challenger two. Uh, in your backyard can give you a serious headache, um, but in and of themselves, fourteen. And remember, of course, that that we we think Ukraine's expressed um, the kind of numbers of about two to three hundred big main battle tanks, Western main, made main battle tanks, and about six hundred infantry fighting vehicles is what they they believe they need to put together. I mean, that'd be from that you're talking, um, you know, two or three armored divisions, basically. Uh, but that's what they what ukraine is talking about so let's let's take the figure of 300 main battle tanks 12 or 14 challenger two is good a, a move in the right direction but it's not it's not the end of the story but it is it is arguably um a moment for the for the for the west to step up and to to get involved and i i i suggested last week that the the American decision on Friday, a week ago, so 10 days, whatever that was, to send 50 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles was the kind of gateway in this debate. Because Bradley, although it's a, an infantry fighting vehicle, it's not a tank. It has a 25 mil main cannon, but it has anti-tank missiles as well. It's digitally enabled. It is a very, very capable infantry fighting vehicle. It's a tank killer, but it's not a tank for those you know, doctrinally pure among us. But I think the uh, that was seen as... Yeah, you know, the U.S. were, uh, if they're not going to go as far as Abrams for now, then putting the Bradley in there was a was a definite signal of intent, and I think that has unlocked some of the some of the political um, gearing in Europe. And then Britain came out with this. So, so what more we're we going to going to see this week um, will be very interesting. I'm told that uh Britain's defence secretary is going to be briefing parliament later on this afternoon in a couple of hours so we'll be um I'll be writing about that for tomorrow and um and we'll we'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, I expect he will only confirm that and put more more detail about how those how those tanks are sent when where and why. But um you know he might give more more details as well about about other um, other capabilities to be um, to be sent as well. But, yeah, just keep an eye out for more announcements um, later on today, but also midweek and at Friday's uh, Ramstein contact group. But um, there's also an interesting debate, which we need to have, Francis, an in- interesting discussion, and we'll have more of this tomorrow. We're going to have uh, uh, former uh, RAF Air Marshal um, Edward Stringer, who, who used to head up defence capabilities, He's going to talk about this idea that perhaps... This is a moment for Britain. So the British Army, in terms of capital equipment, so stuff, is is in a bad state of repair at the moment, been bent out of shape for 20 years doing counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, somewhat took the eye off the ball of armoured warfare, you know, I, I was there at the time, and you know, all the arguments were, "Ooh, that, that's all. That's all old hat." You know, surely Russia's not going to invade. Well, you know, hey, look what happened. So you know, there there is some there is some let out, but but not much. To be perfectly honest, they really did take their eye off the ball in terms of upgrading the the heavy armoured fleet of uh, the Warrior infantry vehicle, and the Challenger tank. So we now we're now left with some. F- fairly tired equipment to be perfectly honest and I'd say of the 227 Challenger 2 148 are going to be uh, earmarked for upgrades to Challenger 3 but even though that is a new gun and some other whizzy gizmos you're still going to end up by the time of it's out of service state out of service life in the back end of the 2030s hulls that are about 60 years old I mean this is not where you want to be as a as a mainstream as a a, a European player big name in in NATO so there's there's now the suggestion that this is the moment. If this armoured force of AS-90 and Challenger and Warrior and all the other bits and pieces, if that was designed to, to kill Russian armour on the battlefield in Europe, well, we've got a battlefield in Europe and there's Russian armour there that needs killing. So there's a suggestion that send the lot, just gift the lot. Russia is wiped out as a ground force, realistically, for five to ten years. So take a risk, Britain. Send your stuff now. Use this moment. OK, there's some contractual obligations. 1.3 billion has been assigned to upgrade for Challenger 3. But, you know, cleverer people than me when it comes to accounting can can get out of that or use that money for other things. Or, hey, it's 1.3 billion quid. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's that's worth writing off. The suggestion is get rid of the lot now. Give it to Ukraine. And take this as a port. So either invest in, I don't know, Leopard two or the South Korean K nine tank. The Poland just bought nine hundred and eighty of. Uh, the first eighty are going to be there in the next couple of months, and, and the uh, ni- the rest of the nine hundred in three years. I mean, just just timescales that we in Britain and elsewhere around Europe, but especially in Britain, we just don't we just don't do it. Just don't, we don't seem to do that. We hang on to this defense sovereignty argument. More of which Ed Stringer is going to talk about tomorrow. But um, there is a moment here, a possible moment, take a bit of risk because it will take time for Britain to get back in the armoured game. But maybe now is the best time to take that risk and at the same time using that fleet for what it was designed to do, which would kill Russian armour on the battlefield. But, But plenty more throughout the week.
2: Yes, absolutely. And just staying on this one more moment, if I may, Dom, I'm very conscious there may be some listeners who are tuning in, having heard the news over the weekend about the tanks and weren't privy to some of the conversations we've had prior to now. So just this fundamental question, because I know this has been a real subject of conversation, which is... When this war started, we saw the tanks being used by Russia in a very ineffective manner and drones, of course, destroying them left, right and centre. Many people then were declaring it the end of the tank. So what is different about these Challenger 2s that will make them more impervious to those kind of drone warfare? Why does this matter so much? Just for the benefit of those listeners who are joining, to, joining us today.
3: Yeah, okay, well, when it comes to military capability, it's always one step ahead, then the other side get a step, and then you get a step, and so on and so forth. So, for example, in fighter jets, you build a lovely, great fighter jet, then the enemy build a missile that can shoot your fighter jet down. So you then have to come up with either a new jet or new countermeasures to knock out that missile, and then they come up with another missile to knock out your countermeasures. That's how military capability works. So in the evolution of tanks, yes, I mean, no tank is ever invulnerable. No one's ever suggested that, and Challenger 2... It's a big old lumbering beast, fully bombed up with, with all, the, all the ammunition on board and all the stores and equipment. You're talking the best part of 62 tonnes. So it's a big old beast, um, which is kind of the ballpark figure for, for that, that size of tank. Um, tanks, the, there's the Holy Trinity. Of firepower, mobility, and protection—that's what a—that's what a tank is. It's it's the it's the best and most efficient use of those of those three: firepower, mobility, and protection. Now, if you cover your entire vehicle with with armor, it will never move. You might have the biggest gun available covered in armor, but you, you know that's a pillbox, right? You can't move it. You you just won't get around the battlefield. You'll get bogged in. You just simply cannot move. So you've got to limit where the armor is. So if you if you imagine standing on top of a tank with a barrel pointing forwards, that's generally the The side that faces the enemy because you'll you'll drive towards the enemy as part of an all arms um, action, so with infantry next to you and artillery and air and helicopters and all the rest of it so you're you're basically the front bit that's the bit you're going to point towards the enemy. So if you was to stand um on the top of a tank and hold your arms out sort of at a sixty degree angle in in front of you, that's where the armor is. So it's in the front of the turret. Uh, and the front of the hull, and the and the first sort of third, or maybe even a half of the side of the hull. So the rear of a tank is very vulnerable. The back, the belly, and the and the top is extremely vulnerable. You can bolt on armour. We see these you know, these big boxes. They look sort of, sort of shoebox sized things. We see on Russian tanks. They're explosive reactive armour. They're basically two plates of metal with an explosive element in between them. So when a when a round hits them, the explosive goes off inside the ERA box, and it physically tries to push away the incoming round. Um, and, you know, it can be successful, which is why modern anti-tank weapons like the N-Law and the Javelin are a dual warhead. Sorry, the Javelin's dual warhead, the N-Law is not. The N-Law has a top attack, goes goes over the tank and fires straight down through the soft top. But the Javelin has a, a, a tandem warhead. So the first warhead sets off the ERA, the second warhead goes through the tank. And this is what I mean about this constant sort of cat and mouse one step ahead of the other. Challenger two doesn't go for that. Doesn't go for doesn't go for ERA, but it just has very 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 capable armor, graded secret. So I mean, I've I've played with it. I've kicked it. I've stubbed my toe on it, but I've no idea what the hell was in it. But it it was just supposedly the best armor. Um, yeah, pick your dates, but the best armor in the world at at that time. But like I say, you can't put it everywhere. But generally, if you work work in concert with other arms and you use the tank to its. It's full effect. So ideally, I mean, the tank round is, is designed to go ideally sort of two kilometers, kilometres, one ish for HESH, which is the, the high explosive, and about two thousand for the um, for the fin, the, the armor plate, sorry, armor piercing, fin stabilized, to start discarding Sabo, the dart, the really heavy metal dart that just perforates uh, enemy tanks and destroys them that way. So you want to be standing off at about that kind of distance. And with the optics on these things, so you'll see you'll you'll have very good magnification by day. You'll be able to see thermally at night, so you can out you can you can see further. You can engage the enemy from further behind, further back, so they can't they can't see. And if they can see, they can't hit you. And if they hit you, then your armour is good enough to um, to put up with that kind of strike. And if you're working like I say, with, with all arms, so that you're not the only thing on the battlefield that these that the enemy is trying to shoot out or that you're able to fire back at the enemy, then they are very, very capable vehicles indeed. Much better than the T-72, which is the predominant vehicle that Russia has on the battlefield. Uh, and as I say, it's the, it's the most efficient use of, of that triangle of, of firepower, mobility and protection, but has its vulnerabilities. The roof is thin. A couple of inches of steel on the roof, so modern. Uh, what are what MOD calling them now? Non non-returnable or one-way drones. Other people call them kamikaze drones that have a TV camera on them, so the 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 operator can guide them onto specific natures of equipment. Can fly them literally into the tank you want to you want to kill. And if you come down from above, then yes, they can get through the top. But what do you need against these things? Well heavy machine gun or other, other type of anti-drone technology to interfere with the radio signal that's controlling the drone or um, some kind of, um, uh, what do they call it, the uh, active protection measures. So... Uh, a bit like ERA, but but senses an incoming round, or an incoming missile, an incoming drone, and fires at it, a box that fires a, a small missile at the thing, almost like micro-air defence, I suppose you could call it, um, f- at the thing coming in. So, of course, tanks are vulnerable to drones from above, they're vulnerable to um, placed munitions, as in anti-tank mines, from below, because the belly of a, of a tank is very thin as well. They're completely vulnerable. Um, but but it's it's always an evolution in these things. And in terms of tanks, there's just finally two two ways of, of of thinking about how they can be knocked out. There's what's called an M kill and a K kill. An M kill is a mobility kill. So. Some of, these, some of these, if you start flinging high explosive around at a tank, you can knock the tracks off, you can damage the engine, you can you can destroy the gearbox, etc., etc. And then the thing's not going to move. Now the gun might still work, so it still be capable. Obviously, you can't continue the forward advance in an attack, but it's still very capable where it is. And the crew will hopefully be um, will survive and be able to get out and and fix the tank or climb in another one and, and carry on. So there's an M kill. A K kill is when it's completely destroyed. Or you know, written off basically, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the crew are dead. Um, and you know, training these crews, whilst whilst it's not it's not absolute rocket science, sorry, Hamish, but um, you know, it, it is it does take a while to to get to, to train the individual crew members, and then to have them working as a team, and have that team working with other tanks, and then to have all those tanks working with all the other bits of the military orchestra. Um, you know, that's where where it, take, it can take the time. So yes, tanks are vulnerable, but you know drones are, are just as vulnerable, and every other munition on the battlefield is, is vulnerable if you know if you know how to defeat them, and you've got enough enough means of finding them and, and warning that they're out there, then you can do something about it. And basically, the battlefield is a is a you know it's not it's not a health and safety place to be really, is it? There's always something that can uh, that can knock you out. So no, it's not the day the day of the tanks is not over. And final piece of evidence, if. if If you want any more convincing, Ukraine has since the Second World War, basically, Ukraine is up against the biggest armoured threat, armoured battle, uh, as I say, since we've seen for about 80 years. And right at the top of their of their wish list for help from from external donors are tanks. Right. So you say that the day of the tank is over. You, that's one of the things that Ukraine is asking for as a, as a priority. So, so they that would suggest that they still see utility in these things. Um, always going to be vulnerable, but what, use them properly, train them well, and uh, and they are still extremely capable. I use use the expression not mine. Not going to claim it as mine, but it, I can't remember where, where it came from. But yeah, you know, the, the the old adage was that that tanks are like dinner jackets. You don't need a din- dinner jacket
2: every day, but when you do need one, only a dinner jacket will do. And it's the same thing for tanks. Thanks, Dom. And just to add to that, I think part of the reason that the Ukrainians are so keen to have them is because of their intentions for Crimea and for other counter-offensives. And of course, you need tanks in order to be able to move troops forward effectively to shield the soldiers, for more firepower, to punch through the kind of defences that we know around Herzog. So I I think, as you say rightly, uh, that it's all very easy for people to speculate. So, well, the the era of the tank is over. But just ask those people on the ground what they need. And as you say, at the very top of their priorities are, are, are tanks. I think also as well, it's just worth underlining as well that for many people things have reached a certain stalemate one can question that interpretation but for some they have and whilst the tanks aren't going to be the game changer that that some people might like they are still nonetheless part of the of the solution that could be what uh, breaks uh, russia's sort of defenses in certain areas they are part of a game-changing strategy rather than a, than a silver bullet, as it were. So they're not the whole solution, but they're part of one. And so I think rather than this being seen as, as perhaps a turning point, it's the first step in what could be one. And that, of course, would play into what you were saying earlier on about the conversations that are happening amongst many foreign governments, the moment about what comes next after this and what further support they will give, not only just in terms of tanks, but other weapons as well, that this is all part of of an ongoing conversation. Um, Just before we turn away from weaponry, Dom, there was one other story about a Poseidon super torpedo that Russia have been uh, bragging about today. I just wonder if we could touch on that very briefly before I come back to James on a story.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll touch on it briefly, only because I I don't think it it deserves a huge amount of airtime. Russia is is very good at... um, producing a new, either a new piece of military capability, a new bit of kit, or having or testing something and saying, this is a new weapon that's going to defeat the West. I mean, we saw it with the Satan nuclear missile. We've saw, seen it with the hypersonic missile. We've seen any new tests and Russia goes, ah, there you go, NATO. There's one in the eye for you. So yeah, Poseidon is a new missile. I've not, I've not heard of it before. Um, fine. Great. I, I mean, look at the T-14 Armata tank. I mean, we've We've mentioned these things years ago i wrote about them years ago this amazing new tank that's going to as they say have nato you know shaking in its shoes well they've they've not turned up I mean firstly they they produced about 30 to 50 of them enough for a sort of battalion worth but they've only ever been seen on the um on the armored games and, and and in test tracks and what have you so so yes russia announces all these things but it's just bringing new capability into service we we do it as well now you know our our Ministry of Defence here is forever sending out beautifully crafted press releases about some new shiny little bit of bit of kit that uh, they want some they want some airtime over. I mean if we brought you every single bit of news about every single bit of new new piece of military equipment being brought into service, we'd we'd never move. Um but okay, fine, so Russia's bring out a new a new a new capability. I don't think we should get too worried about it. Um you know, actions speak a lot louder than words and we've seen what kind of Russian military outfit has turned up in in Ukraine Uh, and I think we should we should concentrate on that you know I don't mean to be glib here because what's happened in Ukraine is the Russian ground force the land army has has basically been broken by this but uh, Russia still has a reasonably capable navy more mass than more quantity than quality but has a very capable um, submarine force uh, missile and air and space forces yep somewhere somewhere in the middle so so russia the russian armed forces writ large still you know still capable although the, like i say the land army has been broken here so i don't mean to 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 say that there is no threat here and there's no risk because we've seen what these people's tolerance for risk is their risk appetite but i don't think we need to worry we don't need to quake in our boots as they would wish it for each new announcement
2: that, that the russian ministry of defense puts out Thanks, Dom. And James, just returning to you, you've spoken a little bit about Wagner earlier on, and I noted that you did a story for us over the weekend about a Wagner mercenary who dodged rifle fire and tracker dogs in an escape into Norway. Just wondering if you could fill us in a little bit more on that story and also just your general reflections on on how many Russian soldiers seem to be fleeing their armed forces or mercenary forces. I've not heard of many, but perhaps you can correct me on that.
0: Yeah, that story came to me quite late last night. Uh, yeah, it's sort of a, a remarkable... This is this is a claims escape. So, he, you know, this uh, chap called Andrei Midwyd, a former commander, unit commander in, in Wagner, mercenary group around the Bakhmut's claim that he he escaped over this very heavily fortified Norway-Russia border, which like runs for about 123 miles in, in the Arctic, frozen wasteland, et cetera. And he claims that at two in the morning on Friday morning, he clambered over two barbed wire fences, legged it across a frozen river, was spotted. Searchlights came on on from, from watchtowers, Russian searchlights. There was uh, a couple of rifle rounds were fired at him, and a dog was set on him. And he miraculously escaped all this and, and made it to a Norwegian house, uh, banged on the door, and, and got help. And is now in in Oslo, seeking asylum. Yeah, it is a remarkable story. If we give him the benefit of the doubt, then this kind of proves my, my point that I was trying to make earlier that uh, Wagner troops are ready to be the, the Russian military shock troop, take over that mountain from troops uh, because that is an incredible feat. Either way, this is important because he's the first Wagner commander to have fled to the West, and he says he's prepared to spill the beans on just how brutal uh, the Wagner mercenary group is. So that remains to be seen. Exactly what he's going to tell us, what, how the Norwegians are going to deal with this chat, etc., etc. He himself is a is a petty criminal, and although Wagner recruited heavily from prisons, penal colonies in Siberia, he actually signed up uh, when he was outside prison. So he signed up on, you know, on, on the no duress. Uh, he signed up for a four month contract in July. And then he went down and was given a command uh, unit to, to deal with in, in Bakhmut. At the end of his four months, he claims he tried to leave and he was told he had to stay on. But he'd become quite matey with his other fighters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they helped him escape. And then in December, he popped up somewhere in Russia, mining Russia, and started to on a video started to, to tell people about these terrible the terrible way that the Wagner uh, fighters are treated etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And then apparently he made this escape because he found a threat. Wagner has this this special group Mjöt, uh, which means honey, Russian word for honey, which go after uh, people who deserts the, the forces. And if they catch these people, uh, they're killed. So this guy made this apparently dramatic escape into Norway. So, um, Volmir do have a problem with their sort of fighters fleeing or deserting. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Begorodhin himself said a couple of months ago, I think it was, that if he can't do any deserters, they, they die. The, the deal is very simple. Uh, this is the convicts, the, the group for the penal police. If you serve a team on, uh, six-month tour of duty in Ukraine, you get a pardon and you're free to resume your life. No matter if you're a murderer or whatever. But if you desert and you're captured, you die. Now one of Andre Medvedev's fighters, he's the Wagner Mercery commander who claims he escaped over the border of Norway on, on Friday. One of his fighters was this was this guy who did desert. He he was recruited from prison and he did desert to the to the Ukrainian side when he got to Ukraine. <clears throat> Fortunately for him, he was handed back in a prison exchange. By the Ukrainian forces back to Wagner. And they dealt with him. They recorded themselves killing him. So, this sort of meant that this guy, all Wagner fighters know this is, this is for real. Even so, people had better take the risk. I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about an armed group of six fighters from uh, a Wagner group who escaped from a uh, camp in, in occupied Donetsk region. Uh, armed and they were on the run around Rostov, which is a big uh, city in southern Russia near the border. So you know this is continuing to happen despite Wagner's threats to to kill people they deserve. Another, I mean, the, the Russian armed forces, be it the regular forces or these Wagner mercenary groups, which are which are Kremlin extensions sort or of Kremlin militia, have a huge problem with morale and. Uh, people deserting, etc. You had this terrible story of the weekends where uh, st- a sergeant, I think it was, at a barracks in Belgorod in southern Russia, led off a hand grenade, which ignited ammunition in, in neighboring uh, houses, and uh, killed three other soldiers and injured 16 others. These are all mobilized men. So if you have... I mean, the, the Russian media laid this down and said the grenade went off accidentally. Opposition, Russian opposition group said it was deliberately set up by the sergeant. If, if if you go to the Russian opposition uh, media, which I'm, I'm more inclined to believe, then morale is so poor that even Russian professional soldiers, sergeants, who, who are meant to be there to keep the whole thing together. We know the NCO uh, Corps in cadre uh, in um, in the Russian army is quite weak, but even so, these are professional uh, soldiers. Uh, they're completely... Exhausted, and their morale is shot to pieces, and they're, they're you know they're essentially committing suicide and, and taking people down with them. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a terrible state of affairs for the Russian army.
2: Thanks, James. Just before we. And I think it's important just to whiz through some of the diplomatic updates. There have been a few over the weekend and today. The first one that struck me is the story of uh, the ex-president of Russia, our old friend Dmitry Medvedev, has said the Japanese prime minister should, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, richly disembowel himself after urging Moscow not to use its nuclear weapons. So it's the latest in what was obviously a long line of shocking and provocative statements from this figure, who once upon a time was considered a West leaning reformer, but has completely reinvented himself since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And we can speculate as to all the reasons why that may be. But he was responding to a meeting between the Japanese prime minister and Joe Biden over the weekend where the two leaders issued a joint statement saying, and I quote, we state unequivocally that any use of nuclear nuclear weapons by Russia in Ukraine would be an act of hostility against humanity and unjustifiable in any way. And as I say in response Mr. Medvedev said in a statement that it showed paranoia towards Russia, quite how it can be paranoid when Russia openly boasts about using these weapons, but anyway, uh, and betrayed the memory of, and this is very interesting, betrayed the memory of hundreds of thousands of Japanese who were burned in the nuclear fire of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course a reference to the use of the atomic bombs by the US to end the Second World War. And I mentioned that last point, not to be crass and to, in quoting it, but to rather underline how so much of Russia seems to view America and the world, which is in this prism of the Second World War. And Natalia has spoken very eloquently on the podcast, as has Jade McGlynn last week, about just how important the Second World War is in the current Russian understanding of itself. And just the fact that it's referencing that as a reason why Japan and the US, which have been very, very close now for for the best part of 80 years after the end of the Second World War, is, is just incredibly revealing as to, I think, how stuck they are in, in, in a certain moment in time and how that then is used for them to reflect how they view the present. So that was one story. Just one other, which I thought was also very interesting, which is Germany's defence minister has resigned amid all of the Ukraine criticism that we've spoken about on the podcast in the last few weeks. So this is Christine Lambrecht. She's resigned following this criticism, as I say, of her handling of the military modernisation programmes and the country's arms delivery to Ukraine. She's put out a statement today that she submitted her resignation request to Chancellor Olaf Scholz, saying that months of media focus on her has stood in the way of a factual debate about the military and Germany's security policy. The valuable work of the soldiers and many people in my department must stand in the foreground, she said. And just to list what some of those PR disasters and and, and blunders were, uh, listeners will recall that at New Year, I think this may well have been the straw that broke the camel's back there was that rather awkward video that she posted on new year's eve where she was standing talking about how she'd found the year and uh, she was standing in, in in a german city whilst there are all fireworks going off and explosives etc and it just optically looked insensitive there's also the criticisms that have been made on her of the 5000 helmets at the very beginning of the war which has been very widely condemned since then and clearly she feels that the media speculation and criticism has, is now um, having a destabilizing impact on, on how perhaps Germany is viewed abroad and internally as well. So she's decided to, uh, to fall on her sword. And who knows, perhaps, beh- just perhaps, it's part of an attempt to reshuffle the cards, as it were, prior to some announcements about leopards. I don't know that, but I'm just speculating it would make sense that if you're going to do that, you want it to be a fresh face that might, that might be the person to announce it. So as I say, watch, watch the this space this week. Dom, I know you had one more update on your conversation following with a senior Western official. Just wondered if you could fill us in on that before we turn to our final thoughts.
3: Yeah, so uh, break, break. This wasn't a Western official. Uh, I was speaking to the head of a a European uh, foreign intelligence agency, so separate from. And I want to make that distinction clear, because when journalists here are invited, well, journalists everywhere, are invited into briefs with Western officials, um, we do not say where where the individual comes from any any nation or organization and so i just want to make absolutely clear that the words i'm when i say western official in future you don't immediately think oh you're speaking to the head of whatever i'm not going to name any agencies but i just want to make absolutely clear that um that the person i, I mentioned earlier on who said that this week could be characterized as the week the west enabled ukraine to win separate from the individual i'm just about to talk talk uh, talk about now who was let's say the head of a um, I'm not going to say which intelligence agency, but but um, a European European agency. And I don't want to pour cold water on on the uh, potential optimism from the back of what uh, what you were saying there, Francis. But but we owe it to well, yeah, we're not we're not going to make stuff up here. We're not we're not cheerleaders for for Kiev. We just don't want don't want Russia to to win. So on the back of that, so the, the, the person I was speaking to was saying um, that they would not agree the question was put to them, they would not agree that Russia has been militarily defeated. And in terms of sustainment, the individual was saying that, that at the current rate of ammunition usage, this was artillery in particular, the first half of 2023 is no problem, quote unquote, is no problem. Russia is now firing about 10,000 rounds a day, which is down from peak in the summer of about 60,000. But Russia would be able to produce about three and a half million ammunition uh, artillery rounds per year if they put their current... Their current um, production means on double shifts, which they could easily do. They just tell people to come and do double shifts or they get um, convicts in, as we've we've seen in some areas. So so could easily transition to producing three and a half million rounds a year, which is the current rate of rate of use. Having said that, in terms of numbers, 14 percent of tanks have been lost. They've still got thousands of T-62. Again, clues in the title. 62, that's the that's the vintage when it was first designed, been upgraded since then. But this is very old pieces of equipment. Um, but thousands and thousands, about 9,500, there we go, I'll put a figure on it, 9,500 T-62 left, which could be cannibalised to produce hundreds, probably not thousands, but could produce hundreds of workable tanks, workable for the fight that they are prepared to throw them into, which as we've seen is is pretty much, here's a here's a metal tank, drive that way, fellas. So, you know, not nothing like what we think Ukraine are using and nothing like the, the Western MBTs, main battle tanks, that hopefully will be supplied. But what we're saying is that, that Russia's got they've got reserves of tanks there. Um, they've lost about ten percent of their helicopter slash fast jet fleet in here in, in this in this war in this in this uh, since February the twenty fourth. So a sizable number, but still leaves ninety percent elsewhere. So, so the numbers are are big, but but they come from a big a big pool. And the individual was saying that it might take Russia five years to return to February the twenty fourth levels but um, levels of military equipment but they are still a very credible threat in terms of ammunition one of the reasons that it's very difficult individuals saying it's so difficult to um, to get an idea of how how long they can sustain um, is because Russian forces take huge risks with their ammunition storage and handling risks that we just just simply would not take in in the West so we see a big pile of ammunition um, we would not touch it Russians are and are using it. Some of it's going bang because it's old and rusty and degraded and the chemicals are corroded and so on and so forth. They're handling it poorly, but they take take much greater risk and hence it's difficult to come to a, a um, an agreement about exactly what stocks they've got. Mobilisation. So the second round of mobilisation, or the second half of the mobilisation that we've already seen, which we think could could produce about one hundred and fifty thousand mobilised personnel, Russia has not closed the borders. Remember those pictures a few months ago of um, people trying to flee across the borders to get out of Russia before they were called up. Well, that's not happening now. And what's that? What that means is that that. The um, those that want to leave can. Russia is quite, well, I wouldn't say quite happy. I think they make life quite difficult for them, but they want those people to go. So those that are left are those that either support the war, are neutral, or just have no other option. So they're they're, they're desperate, and therefore, as we know from Russian from the Russian military society, they'll just sort of go with the flow and do what do what they're told. So this second round, or this the the, the second half of this round of mobilisation, seems to be done in a more system, uh, systematic approach to the first wave. The first wave, if you remember, was there to prevent the collapse of the front line. The second wave seems to be more about enabling Russia to go on the offensive. There seems to be a more systematic approach to this second wave. Um, and the individual I spoke to just made the point that all Russian soldiers die as heroes, but they're largely forgotten about by the system when they're alive. And I think we've kind of seen that. So, so we should take it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very credible source, but this idea that there could be thousands of more mobilised people uh, Russian soldiers coming and a more systematic approach to putting them together as formed teams and formed units. That is credible. In terms of society, uh, this individual assessed that there was an anxious mood but no willingness to accept defeat and said there's no revolution coming from the Russian people anytime soon. However, uh, Putin does understand that Russian society will not forgive a loser. Uh, in terms of the Gerasimov move, so the head of the Russian armed forces, Valery Gerasimov, he's now head of the Russian armed forces, and he's uh, in day-to-day charge of the war, uh, as we thought it was. This this uh, this individual saying that that was down to a power struggle in the Kremlin. This is seen as a blow for Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, um, who is seen as not delivering enough. Partly, probably, why he's been so quick and so keen. To tout Solidar as a as a massive victory, even though it, it's a small victory, possibly, probably, uh, but they're not in complete control of the town. We don't think. Um, the individual said it, it's a very Russian style for the top man to be sent in to fix things when uh, when they're going wrong. But uh, Gerasimov, who quote, tends not to be a military genius. Take that stiletto out of your ribs. Um, Yeah, tends not to be a military genius. This could be the last chance for him. But Putin has put him in there, this individual was suggesting, because he values loyalty much more than capability, much more than actually being able to do your job. Loyalty is everything. I might mention that here at the Telegraph. Um, He says that Russia, he or she said that Russia sees the West's lack of consensus over what a Ukrainian victory would look like as a weakness and as perceived there are cracks in the US Republican Party over support for Ukraine. And we'll try and fill that with um, influence. And, uh, uh, and yeah, we, we can expect more more to come there. And Finally, if there is any relatively good news from this, it was a, it was a very candid, very candid chat. And I think we um, I think we're better for it and i think we we do need to uh, we do need to express this as well as well as uh, lauding all the failures of russia but finally in the gru so the russian military intelligence outfit that we know are in ukraine and across uh, eastern europe well of course whole of europe but but an, a big effort in eastern europe looking for these ammunition supply lines around the the airfield in in poland and elsewhere where a lot of the Western kit is going in, and they are trying to identify these routes and then hand them over to their to their buddies, GRU buddies inside Ukraine, to identify the the ammunition storage facilities and the logistic hubs uh, for subsequent destruction. And we've seen that occasionally, haven't we? We've seen the uh, we've seen missiles, long range missiles, going in and trying to destroy these hubs. But uh, this individual. Interview- Individual confirmed that the the GIU is trying to do that, monitor and identify these arms shipments, but says that Russia's targeting cycle does not allow them to be swift enough to hit moving targets um, or in any way interdict them, and agreed that they are more likely looking for the distribution sites in Ukraine. The individual thought it was surprising that there'd been no strategic Russian strategic sabotage operation in Poland or elsewhere to either blow up some of these sites or to stop the... um, or to, to to stop the, the, the supply of arms uh, and put that down to a, a successful allied counterintelligence operation. So there seems to be, you know, the great game right now in, in Eastern Europe. You've got Russian spies running around looking for the high Mars and looking for all the other e- e- quit, kit and equipment being flown into Poland and elsewhere, of course, not just Poland. And then taken by road and rail across the border into Ukraine. Got a big Russian effort there. Russian spies running around trying to interdict those sites, interdict those movements, hand them over to their, to their muckers inside Ukraine. And there seems to be a very large allied counterintelligence operation. So our spies looking for their spies and military people and God knows who else. Um, that's my interpretation, not, not this individual's, I should say, um, of our people looking for them. So, I mean, the diplomatic front on this will, if it ever comes out, will be fascinating to follow. Uh, and and with that, the individual disappeared back into the shadows. But I will pass on again uh, from the next
2: next brief I have with um, with such such people, such as I'm able. It's all starting to sound a little bit too much like a John le Carré novel, uh, James. It's our f- time for final thoughts. Uh, if I could start with you, what would you leave our listeners with today?
0: Well, f- firstly, I, d- I don't think. There has actually been a second mobilisation in Russia yet, so we've had a lot of noise from Ukraine about this. But it hasn't been cooled. Obviously, that's something to watch out for. There are a couple of other tools that Putin and the Kremlin has, which they can use before they mobilise once again. Uh, One of those is only about half the 320,000 mobilised men have even been in combat yet. So so he's got to reserve about 150,000 soldiers, etc., and plus, he's got a, a same same number, roughly, of conscripts. So he may—I mean—it's a very, very would be a highly politicized move in Russia to use conscripts. But he could, if you take the Moscow perspective, that the annexed regions are now formed part of Russia. Conscripts, if war hasn't been declared, are legally allowed to be deployed uh, inside Russia. So legally, the Kremlin could could do that. And they could also extend the um the, the term the, the, the period that uh conscription soldiers so have to serve in 12 months 18 or 24 months which is going back to the Soviet Soviet period so 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 there are definitely those are definitely things to watch out for for our readers I'd say with general Kodisimov and this uh, terrible missile attack so that we can't I think he's in a being backed into a corner and he has to in in a way he has to he has to deliver something. Sudorovkin wasn't really able to; he was able to sh- to shore up the the sinking ship. And and so I think with Gudymov in charge, you will see an escalation of, of the war, such like um, such as we we saw over the weekend. We might be seeing more of that sort of thing. We might be seeing more aggressive uh, Russian military manoeuvres on the ground, etc. I think he he's he's been brought in. It's got a much higher political and public profile than Ravikin, uh ever had. And I think he's been brought in to use that. And I think we will see that happening on the battlefields around Ukraine. And then finally, I think the story of the Samara with the destruction of this battalion of mobilized men. We think up to 400 were killed on New Year's Eve at a New Year's Eve party in a barracks uh, at a town called Makiva outside Don. Uh, Russian military defense of course, lying in about 89. But it's clearly about four hundred, or really, like the whole the whole lot. So this is an almost entire battalion of mobilized men were destroyed in a high-mole Ukrainian high attack on, on New Year's Eve, and the repercussions of that are filtered through into Samara. I've seen some incredible videos where women who who so, so, so Russian Ministry Defence is denying the information. It's just not helping, and it's really frustrating that these poor women whose husbands and sons were mobilised in September or October and now have gone off to, to war and haven't heard from them. And I've seen some incredible videos of women saying, no, hey, this is your war, not our war, etc. They're not directly criticising Putin or even the Kremlin and a lot of the blame is at the Minister of Defence. But that frustration, that sort of contractual deal that Putin always had with the Russian population that he was in charge, they didn't have to worry about it, uh, his authoritarian methods, etc., traditionally Russian, and and he's going to pose them, but he's going to take care of everyone that contractual obligation to to deliver Russians a safe and relatively prosperous life has been fractured. So if there's another uh, disaster like this, or if the Kremlin propaganda machine starts to fracture even further, you might see more discontent. I'm not talking about revolution or or massive protests, but just that sort of important uh, sort of lack of, confidence seeping through in in the
2: Russian and Kremlin system. Well thank you James and uh to end today over to Tinker Taylor Soldier Dom.
3: Uh thank you for that Francis. Uh yeah so so this week if it is indeed going to be characterized as the week that the West enabled Ukraine to win, then we've started off in a good way with the with the Chalito announcement. I'd be very interested to see if Germany makes a move with the Uh, removal of the uh, Defence Minister, as uh, Francis was saying earlier on. Um, Next move on this is, I'm told now just after four o'clock, we're expecting Ben Wallace to speak in the the House of Commons here in London. As I say, I I don't think he'll give Give anything more? I think it's just going to give some more details about the announcement that came out over the weekend. But there might be, however, it does it does all go well for a for a busy a busy week of gifting, capped off as I said on Friday. Location yet to, uh, to be decided, or <laughs> we'll to t- tell Dom, um, but I hope to be there. The next the, the Ramstein Contact Group, so uh, so named because it first of all started in, in the US Air Base in Ramstein, Germany. This is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's um, initiative. About 50 nations now around the table gifting uh, military aid and only military aid, so not humanitarian aid, not just straightforward economic loans, etc. Hardware, military hardware for Ukraine. So Friday is that is that big event. And hopefully there'll be some other announcements in between now and then starting off in
2: a couple of hours. Ukraine, the latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get 3 months access to our website for just 1 pound at telegraph.co.uk/ukraine the latest. Or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments on our new email address, which is ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and now plan to reply to even more of them. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.